Welcome to The Dialectic, a Fair Observer podcast by the Rajput and the Wasp. I'm Atul Singh, the founder, CEO and editor-in-chief of Fair Observer. I am the Rajput. And I'm Glenn Carl, and I am the Wasp. In our last episode, we made sense of the thorny issue of Taiwan. In this episode, we examine another important question. Is India becoming a great power? What does that imply? Well, um, Glenn, you have uh, set up a fascinating question. Now, you have personal experience to speak about India. You have been a guest in India for a few weeks. Uh, we spent some time on the road. You've penned a wonderful piece about your experiences. Uh, I'm not going to give the listeners all away and and start reading out from your piece. It's uh, probably the best thing you've ever written. Yeah, but then I'm biased. Uh, now tell us uh, a bit about your brush uh, uh, with magic realism of the Indian variety during your trip. <laughs> well, that that's pretty accurately put, I think. Um, this would be not just the subject of a podcast by itself, but but really yet another book that I should write, and will, you know, the 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 life road of life is is littered with the books that I should have written and haven't. But this would be a really 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 good one. Uh, Glenn, Glenn, so, uh, Glenn, we'll have you back in the country, and you will write the book. This time we'll take you to the mountains. This time we will not have any of the rest of the shenanigans, uh, and we will hike, and you'll have plenty of solitude in the Himalayas. Okay. Well, I, I cackle because for the listeners know nothing about what, I, what, what we're laughing about, but I have had um, a lifelong uh, goal of hiking or trekking, as Indians would say, in the Himalayas. And, and this for a number of reasons. I, I'm a lifelong um, hiker. I, I've, I'm an experienced uh, hiker, not just walking and in the woods or along mountain trails, but extensive hikes. I've hiked for weeks at a time in um, Alaska, uh, parts of Alaska where literally no humans have ever lived. It's fascinating, uh, parts of, of Alaska that, uh, where the, the landscape doesn't even have uh, any names because humans never, except for passing through, have, have been there. And I've hiked in New Zealand, I've hiked in Africa, I've hiked in Europe, I've hiked in America. Uh, and for, you know, up to th up to three weeks uh, at a time. So that was a goal to to do in India, and I thought the clock is ticking. I'm getting older, and so if I don't do it, uh, no, you're still young, Glenn. You're <laughs> you're still young and good looking, as the Indians have told you repeatedly. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Yes, well, I I, I <laughs> basically destroy all the mirrors in my home, or or I turn them backwards so I can't see myself, and then I can convince myself I remain young, but. In any event, that was the plan, and uh, my Rajput friend Atul had um, arranged to have one to accompany me, part, part of the way at least, and to have two of his former uh, military colleagues um, serve as friends, guides, companions uh, for a lengthy hike in the Himalayas. But I, I discovered that I think the multiverse, much discussed by physicists, in fact, exists. And, and I had a, a proof firsthand as, as to why Indians have such a uh, rich heritage and, and uh, 
uh, world-leading uh, um, experts in mathematics, uh, astrophysics, and, <laughs> and philosophy, because I was essentially kidnapped, um, hijacked is perhaps a better word, <laughs> by, by um, several minders who were guardians and guards and assistants and so on that I was provided uh, by mysterious forces um, who, who never let me even get to the Himalayas. I, in three weeks plus, I never saw them except for the foothills. But I was taken, spirited away into uh, multidimensional uh, experiences all through India, meeting senior officials and, and uh, powerful um, economic players and business uh, figures and uh, nondescript, um, illiterate uh, peasants in the streets and everything between in a series of uh, events that I, over which I had no control uh, that took me through ashrams with swamis and uh, halls of corridors of power uh, all around the country. And uh, it was one of the remarkable experiences I've ever had. And uh, the Indians all seemed to have been deluded that I was a person of some consequence <laughs> because they kept asking my opinion on uh, things, and I and I would insist that I was no longer an authority, you know, a a, a uh, government official, but uh, they all attributed that to false modesty or to misplaced modesty, and seemed to take me seriously. I mean, you are, and after all, was... a Boston Brahmin with five forefathers <laughs> and the Mayflower. Indians take it that was... sort of stuff very seriously. Your your genealogy yeah. matters. Your genes that's, matter. That's right. That's right. If only the Americans were to take it so seriously, then, then perhaps I'd have a higher status here. Um, well, they will, they will in due course of time, we'll convert them. But it was a remarkable trip, and, and in, all, in seriousness, I mean, there are, as uh, perhaps if anyone reads uh, what I've written, truly philosophical implications to it. I'm, I'm, I am, uh, by inclination, uh, philosophically minded about you know, what is the point of each step we take in the day, and uh, and yet, also it was a humbling experience, as as all thoughts should be, because one realizes, particularly if one is immersed in Hinduism and in India, the uh, inconsequentialness, inconsequentiality of, of everyone, and yet, um, the nearly divine nature of everyone. I'm sounding metaphysical, and and it is, but it was a remarkable experience, um, both that the sort of prosaic yet important political and economic level, the cultural level. And um, for those, I believe, who are attuned to what's happening around them, even a, a metaphysical uh, a journey. So it was, it was quite a trip. And India makes a strong impression. Well, brilliant. Uh, speaking of a strong impression, one of the things you constantly observed was the amount of building, the amount of activity and the and the level of energy that you experienced through the length and breadth of the country. Now, for those of our listeners who don't know the figures pertaining to India's GDP, India's GDP is estimated to be $3.469 trillion in nominal terms this year, that is 2022. In PPP terms, which is purchasing power parity terms, it is already 11.665 trillion dollars. Um, now, 
No. Which which puts it about, if I recall my figures, about fifty yeah. percent of the yeah. uh, GNP of the United States, yeah. which is remains the, the largest in the world. Yeah, you know. about fifty percent. But remember that uh, the per capita GDP is much lower because India has a large population, one point three billion people. So it's relatively still a poor country, and perhaps because it is such a poor country, it has a lot of catching up to do, which is why it can grow at a fast pace for a while, and it can sustain growth rates of a high level. Now, the International Monetary Fund has projected India to grow at 6.8% in the current fiscal year. Now, India's fiscal year begins on 1st of April and ends on 31st of March. And last year, India grew at 8.7%. And these figures come from the IMF's October 22 World Economic Outlook. Apart from such numbers, which really sometimes mean very little. What's important to, to understand is that India is expected to be the third largest construction market globally by 2022. The Indian logistics market will be $320 billion by 2025. And uh, India is expected to, uh, uh, the infrastructure growth is uh, expected to be 11.4%, uh, the compound annual growth rate, CAGRS, as it is often known uh, over the next five years. There'll be lots of spending on water supply, on transport, on, on urban infrastructure. Uh, so what this really means is India is building lots of ports, uh, lots of highways, uh, lots of um, laying down lots of rail. Uh, um, and uh, uh, frankly, the Indian economy is poised, as Glenn kept saying, for a multiplier effect. Uh, Glenn, uh, you also talked about the military budget and uh, technology, uh, so I'll before, let you crack on. Oh, yes. Yeah, before we, we touch upon, move to the military budget, to, to put in context, uh, perhaps our listeners don't, don't need it, but, but I think it might make it more um, alive to us than, than a sequence of, of Numbers. figures. Yeah. 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 Um, everywhere one goes... In India. Now, India is immense, and of course, I didn't go everywhere, and one trip does not an expert of me make. <clears throat> but uh, I, I went over the western third, anyway, of the country from the uh, from the foothills of the Himalayas. I did make it to those, um, down to the uh, Indian Ocean and, and points between multiple cities. Everywhere one goes, one sees, one is has literally looming over you. That's literally true. Uh, construction, uh, highways, uh, you know, rise to the sky because they will be overpasses um, and then they stop because they're in the process of being uh, built. You know, they stop midair, as it were, but you are underneath them as you drive along. Um, metros are being built. I, I didn't have the opportunity to take the metro since my, my minders had a car and a driver for me and I was whisked all around like a VIP. But, I, but there are metros being built aggressively. Um, the, the impression that this makes for an American who's, who's lived my entire life post-World War II as the, you know, the, the cock of the walk, America is the number one. And of course, we're richer and more developed and more advanced and have better roads and fancier cars than anybody and so on. A lot of this is looking backward, frankly, in the perspective. And you get a sense of dynamism and, and energy happening, not only in India, in many parts of the world, that Americans are blind to. We're, we're suffering a little bit from 
the not just a little bit uh, from the same phenomenon that the British have suffered, which is to think that the the sun will never set on the empire and America will always be um, 50, account for 50% of the world's GNP. Uh, neither statement, of course, is true. And you really do feel the dynamism of India. And now all of this occurs, of course, amidst the stunning squalor and poverty that you see also. Uh, I have seen worse, I think, or at least as bad uh, in Indonesia. Um, but the sense that the country is is bursting with uh, development is uh, powerful, powerful. And, th and that then leads to the immediate question that I had and, and other people who were not Indian, Indian but with whom I spoke in India uh, also thought, which is the, the ways to, at least for a Westerner, the ways to economic development are, are pretty clear. And all of these things happening now are in real time, very recent. And it begs the question is, well, what the heck has India been doing for 60 years since independence? And the answer is clear. And I'm not a shill for the, uh, for the Modi government uh, at all, um, but uh, to uh, unfetter the uh, potential and the, the potential brilliance and dynamism of uh, the Indian population in this case is just the obvious thing to do, and that has happened only in the last, you could argue, 20 years, but, but it seems to me last decade hmm. at, at most. Um, and it, it's, uh, it is stunning to see, stunning to see. And then, so the, the growth rates, as I understand it, the India's growth rate has been um, roughly equal to, but ascending towards parity with and then exceeding, that of China, and we all know, all know that China has been the superstar of the last 30 years, and uh, India has demographic and various social political uh, factors that are more conducive to sustained growth uh, and uh, innovation, frankly, than what the Chinese are doing to themselves now. So the the impression, but not just the impression, the the uh, evidence that one sees everywhere and feels in India answers to me the question pretty clearly, is India becoming a great power? And the answer is yes. Brilliant. Um, two things very quickly, uh, Glenn, I must uh, point out, which is that uh, liberalization in India began in 1991. It was a result of a balance of payments crisis. That is when India had to fly out gold reserves, I believe, to London to secure money to just pay for oil. And uh, that was the time when um, Narsimha Rao was in power. Narsimha Rao was a historic prime minister, and he set into motion the opening of the economy, and that opening of the economy unleashed uh, market forces and higher growth. Before that, India had followed the license permit Kota Raj, uh, in other words, an indigenous form of socialism, in which only the Indian administrative service officers and a few politicians at top benefited. They had Swiss bank accounts. If they were honest, they had a lot of deference. In fact, they were like feudal lords who presided over the economy. And the top politicians and their apparatchiks, the Indian administrative officers, administrative service officers, and of course their underlings kept India in a Hindu rate of growth painfully slow 
uh, rate of growth, which you'll remember is something many of the business people in Gujarat, in Ahmedabad, spoke about. One of them actually spoke about 27 inspectors coming to his factory and each one of them collecting their own respective bribe. So in India, doing anything was impossible pretty much till 1991. And in 1991, that crisis saw um, a loosening of uh, the dead hand of the state, um, a mitigation of red tape, and then the second reforming government was under the Bharatiya Janata Party, Atal Bihari Vajpayee, who began uh, a program of infrastructure development. It was the golden quadrilateral linking at least the top four cities through highways. And uh, his time also saw uh, much reform and it led to higher economic growth. However, once um, that government lost office or lost power in 2004, a socialist government took charge in 2014. It was nominally headed by Manmohan Singh, a Sikh a gentleman, an economist, uh, uh, erudite and urbane, but de facto power lay with the Nehru family. and. Um, the Italian uh, daughter-in-law of Indira Gandhi, Sonia Gandhi, um, or Sonia Maino, was very much uh, in charge. Power actually lay in her residence, Denjanpath, and her uh, dim-witted son, Rahul Gandhi, who once tore up uh, something that Manmohan Singh had, had announced in public, diluting the pri uh, authority of the Prime Minister. So at that time, in those 10 years, the focus was redistribution, the focus was very much a reversion to some sort of socialism, particularly in the second term. And with uh, the Modi government coming to power in 2014, uh, there was this renewed focus on improving um, uh, business environment, or a focus on infrastructure development. And uh, on the whole, they've done a decent job, but we cannot forget that Two things uh, the Modi government didn't weren't very helpful. One was uh, uh, the uh, currency notes. Uh, what they did was they scrapped uh, currency notes of uh, major denominations. And the other was a botched rollout of the GST, which is uh, the goods and services tax, which was a very, very good measure and it is now reaping uh, good results. But the rollout could have been better. But uh, on the whole, uh, other than that, uh, they've been more market friendly than others. And certainly this is, this is the, the key thing. I mean, one can argue that the, or I'm not I'm not implying that I disagree. I, I agree with you about the, the currency notes and the, the GST uh, errors. But in, in the larger scheme and, and painful they would be for policymakers and for, for Indian citizens and are heatedly disputed and all this sort of thing, all of which is completely legitimate. But from the 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 uh, mega perspective, the the meta perspective, the outside view, there, those are um, errors along the way. I, I would argue similar, perhaps to I, I think President Biden erred um, by not um, approaching the French uh, concerning this this uh, submarine uh, defense deal with Australia, which the French had uh, been working uh, on for years, had a contract. And the Americans undercut them, undermine them. That was an unnecessary um, self uh, goal, yeah. own goal. And, and I think the the two points, and, and probably many others that Modi has done, 
uh, are errors too. But but they're actually for me secondary because it's so clear that the um, potential of the Indian of Indian society uh, is being at last unfettered, and you can see it uh, transforming transforming life almost almost day you know daily. It, it is it is quite powerful, quite powerful. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly true. Demonetization, that's the term for it. I think demonetization was an error, but on the whole, in the meta perspective, even the communists are reforming. That's important to note. Even the Communist Party in Kerala, who are in power in Kerala, and some of our listeners will be shocked to learn there are communists in power, especially the American ones. <laughs> but there is actually a communist government. I stayed away from Kerala. Yes, uh, yeah. exactly. As a good retired CIA man. But anyway, the, uh, uh, although you were a guest of Jason Manjali in IIT Gandhinagar, who's, uh, who is from Kerala and who's a crypto communist, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. He was charming. He's charming. And I hope that our listeners know I was being tongue-in-cheek. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, exactly. We are being tongue-in-cheek. Anyway, uh, the point is that uh, in India, Kerala has a communist government and they have turned free market just like Deng Xiaoping. You go east of Kerala, you go to Tamil Nadu, there is a government run by Stalin. His name is actually Stalin. He's the chief minister. And he is market-friendly too. So I suppose Uncle Joseph Stalin would be rolling in his grave, frothing at the mouth, uh, drowning again in his own vomit to discover that the communists in Kerala and Stalin in Tamil Nadu have betrayed him long after his death. Yeah. Well, here, let me mention, uh, perhaps touch upon quickly, three things that are, are profoundly interrelated and, and I think make the case that uh, about India's rising global uh, strength and role. Uh, the, for decades, it was clear in my, for anyone who studies India, um, uh, and then in my case, when I, I did from time to time interact with counterparts from the Indian government, and I always found them uh, diplomats and, and officials and so on, and I always found them uh, uh, very sharp, very talented. They were um, an, the, an elite. But then most uh, foreign representatives, representatives of, of countries are, are impressive people on the whole. I mean, they're, it's quite competitive to, to find, earn a position like that. But the Indians uh, always retained, and I must say still do retain, this is, this is um, something that I think India needs to work on, but it will be an organic uh, transformation. They, they did retain and do this uh, perspective, it's more a perspective than an attitude. It's, it's a framework of thought and perception uh, that is derived from the lengthy colonial experience, certainly that of the British Raj. And, and I would argue, um, frankly, for five or 800 years uh, of uh, domination by a foreign culture and um, power structure, you know, with the, the Mughals and even before them. The Turks. Invasions. The Turks, the, the Pashtuns, and the Mughals. And then after yeah. that, the British ruled India. So, uh, so it, it was very much uh, uh, a foreign power of sorts, even though they indigenized. Yet, remember that Farsi, right. Persian, was the official language of India from 1192 to 1858 and even further on because it took a while for for the British to displace Farsi and replace it with English. So for over and, 800 yeah. years, 
um, actually over, uh, sorry, uh, 600 odd years, Farsi was the official language, at least of North India. So, so this has given, it, it's powerfully apparent to me, um, a, a perspective of um, hmm, visceral and, and reflexive, it's not even conscious almost, um, resistance to or, or disdain for um, separation from wariness of uh, foreign powers, in particular the United States, for, for more recent historical reasons. Um, America is clearly viewed by, the, by Indian society, from the elites on down, everyone with whom I've spoken my entire life, as the successor to the British Raj. We speak the same language, we're their little, their cousins, we're their successors as the global imperial power. And, and the Indians clearly view this power as a, a threat and a wariness. It also makes sense and comes from the fact that how did one, how, did, how could anyone oppose the colonial master in the 19th century or the 20th? And the, the alternative, <clears throat> What, uh, to the domination, to accepting uh, the superiority in the, of power and perhaps of culture, as the uh, one could conceivably infer, and certainly everyone did in the 19th century, uh, would have was uh, uh, the Marxist-Communist interpretation of history. That and who helped uh, the Indians or other colonial uh, peoples? Um, do anything about the colonial overlords. And it was uh, Moscow, frankly, and the Marxist perspective. Uh, not, the Indian elites were trained in this. It is a natural perspective to have. One seeks uh, self-worth and independence, literally and figuratively. It was also taught widely. It became the dominant intellectual framework, even in Oxford, Oxford and Cambridge. I'm Very more Cambridge than Oxford. I, I beg to I beg uh, to differ. Okay. I'm an Oxford man, and so in Oxford, <laughs> okay. in Oxford, the Tory party still remains strong, uh, and uh, political science is still called politics. We did not budge, so so I would say certainly all the spies were from Cambridge. So, but on on a serious note, in the Indian con uh, context, there are uh, three things to note. Number one, India was colonized by the British East India Company. This is extremely important. India's brush with capitalism was particularly raw in the red in the tooth and claw. So that traumatized India. Number two, British uh, for-profit policies were basically to maximize profits for their home country, for their home companies. So in the name of free trade, they imposed a lot of uh, practices that decimated India. For instance, the British grew opium in India and exported it to China. Obviously, this meant starvation for the brown people and addiction for the yellow people. That traumatized uh, India too. Remember, George Orwell was born in India on an opium plantation in Motihari in Bihar. That's important to remember. So that is a further, further vignette that is um, key to understanding India. And number three, uh, Glenn has already pointed that out. But number three is the massive investment Soviet Union made to cultivate India. And it goes back to Nehru. Uh, Glenn believes that, of course, Absolutely. Uh, Glenn believes that in his historic trip in the 20s to, to Moscow and the Soviet Union, Jawaharlal Nehru was 
if not literally, but certainly metaphorically seduced, um, if not by Soviet agents, but then certainly by the Soviet idea. They were taken to these model factories. They were shown no, the, by the idea. Yeah. There's no question. Exactly. And and if and by by a direct uh, targeting, shaping, uh, manipulation, possibly recruitment. You know, I don't know don't firsthand, know. but I do know how the the Soviets work. Yeah, and, and and Indra was 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 targeted even more assiduously back in during her visit in 1953, and generations of Indians came through that process of being fed this uh, Soviet view of the world, which had an element of truth that the dominant Anglo-Saxon powers were imperial that uh, companies had exploited the third world, that uh, the system was not necessarily fair. All of that was true, but they forgot to mention that the Soviets were running their own imperial uh, entity and the Soviet Union wasn't particularly kind to Hungary or for that matter, Poland, or to for anyone. that matter, Siberia, or to anyone, to their own people. To anyone. So, so, so the, the Indians perhaps were right in saying, okay, if this model doesn't work, but uh, they, they went from one false god to another. And over a period of time, this leftist thinking, this uh, socialist construct, which, by the way, in India was imposed through a colonial bureaucracy. They brought in the five-year plans, which they copied from the Soviet Union. But instead of, let's say, engineers implementing it, Indian administrative service officers who generally went to St. Stephen's College which in those ways, days, days was the anglicized elite of India that drank their scotch in the Gymkhana Club, later the India International Center, never spoke to their servants except to say, you know, polish my shoes a little better and clean the tabletops uh, a little faster. This elite, this scotch drinking elite, la gauche caviar as the French say, champagne socialists, uh, that's the other term, or limousine liberals, that's another term, took over and literally became a rent-seeking parasitical right. class and destroyed the economy. But it, one can see it, it's a logical, conceptual uh, evolution that how does one oppose colonialism? Okay, we've discussed the, the sort of the obvious path, almost the only path that one could take intellectually then. But then that led in the Indian context more than, than most because India is large and put in, and simply by being large, it had some power that a country like Burundi, say, where I worked, which is a teeny country, smaller than you know a middle-sized city in India, um, couldn't afford. Was to say, well, we, you know, a pox on all all your houses, all you foreigners are out to exploit us, which is which is accurate on the whole, and so we will not we will not align ourselves with the West, with you Americans who are the successors to the Raj, and we will uh, accept the the uh, friendship and the help of the of the Soviets, but we don't want to be in the Soviet orbit e either. Ergo, we'll have the non-aligned movement. And that, that's, that makes sense. But it's now 2022, almost 2023, and India is no longer a newly independent uh, state and is no longer um, unable to feed itself near starvation and beholden to external powers. Uh, and so this attitude, which it's more than vestigial, uh, it, it still remains, it is now dying. And so what's happening as India increases in uh, strength economically, then therefore politically, India is coming uh, already 
to play a global role, which it had uh, formally and still claims to largely repudiate or, or not to accept. And uh, this is happening in the arms industry, indigenously and, and uh, internationally, in economic fora, uh, in political fora. Uh, India is becoming no longer uh, the most powerful uh, third way, but is progressively engaging. Uh, and, uh, and I think this is on overwhelmingly a, a positive uh, development for India and, and for the world, uh, is becoming truly an active global power. Uh, its size will guarantee that it is not um, uh, a second to anyone. Uh, and, and we can see this happening. And we, could, we can talk, we, we should, about the arms industry changes and then the... Uh, the diplomatic and military implications internationally of that. Brilliant. So before we do that very quickly, um, to give three specific examples how India is now a major global power. Well, uh, the first example is really technology. India is back office when it comes to services to many of the top technological firms in the world. Bangalore is known as India's Silicon Valley. There are all sorts of companies from Goldman Sachs to uh, all the outsourcing stuff. Google is there and it's not just Bangalore now, it's Hyderabad and Chennai as well. McKinsey, all their presentations are made in India. The Economist Intelligence Unit has a huge office in Gurgaon. So what is happening just as China became the workshop of the world, India is now in many ways the back office of the world. So technologically, India has become a software power. It is still at the lower end, but bit by bit, it'll move up the ladder as skills improve. Uh, the second important thing to note uh, as a specific example is the pharmaceutical industry. This is where India has made gargantuan leaps. Uh, India has supplied vaccines to, to much of the world in the COVID pandemic, uh, including Afghanistan, um, where it also sent 50,000 tons of of wheat, but that's an aside. We are talking about pharma here. India provides generic drugs to much of Africa. Uh, lots of people fly into India from uh, the Middle East, from Africa, from uh, other parts of Asia for medical treatment. In, actually, a lot of Americans are coming to America too for medical treatment. So when it comes to medicine as a whole um, and the pharmaceutical sector, in particular India is in some ways, the pharmacy of the world. And third, of course, defense, where India uh, just had a defense expo in Gujarat. India has increased its military budget. India has uh, capability to make missiles. India is making drones. And India is fast trying to indigenize production in, in, in lots of other spheres. And uh, India has uh, also just recently sold weapons to Armenia. So India is very much uh, making uh, progress in, in uh, the arms industry, creating a local defense industry. And, and I'll let Glenn speak more to what that means because Glenn, yeah, it's... Glenn had something to say about Armenia during our visit to India when we were sitting in a hotel lobby, which was very prescient. Well, it was... Um... The, the, the arms issue the, uh, is a nascent uh, change, but it, it's an, an indicator of what is happening and what's certainly going to be the case 
um, quickly and quickly in 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 this context means within the uh, by the end of the decade you know between now and 2030 this will uh, evolution will occur in a way that will be i think clearly noticeable uh, at the international level at present india is not a particular player in the international arms market and is not uh, much of a an, an indigenous uh, producer of arms but that is changing i think Five years or ten years ago, ninety-eight uh, percent, I think, something like that, of uh, India's uh, arms were all uh, bought, provided by foreign powers, and that was the Soviet Union, Russia, uh, and then the United States, France, and UK, uh, largely. Today, that figure I think is sixty-eight percent already, which means that in a decade, India has uh, developed now uh, developed the capability of producing about a third of its own uh, arms uh, needs. Uh, that will continue to grow uh, quickly, perhaps even more significant, or, or at least the foreign uh, component of the significant uh, development, is that in the last uh, two months, I think it is, uh, maybe three now, uh, India signed uh, an arms contract with Armenia. Now, Armenia is not a global power. Uh, the amount was $250 million, uh, that India will provide $250 million of uh, various kinds of weapons to Armenia. But this is a very significant development and, and didn't has not received uh, much attention internationally. <clears throat> what does that signify? Uh, one, it's, it's an initial $250 million with follow-on uh, contracts, for I believe, for another $250 million coming. So we're talking probably half a billion dollars to a small country. But here, India is now becoming a player in the international arms market, which implies also that they can provide their own weapons. Now, this is not low-end weapons. This is not just building uh, the successor to the AK-47 uh, assault rifle. Uh, it's providing missiles and vehicles, and uh, it, it is progressively becoming a cutting-edge, leading technology uh, producer of armaments, as is Turkey, as we've seen in, in Ukraine. Just, just to this be, will continue. Just to be specific here, uh, India is providing its indigenous Binaka multi-barrel rocket launchers. It's also going to give anti-tank rockets, as well as a range of ammunition. So it, it, you're right, it's, it's much more than just AK-47 or AK-56 or whatever refurbished AK rifles. Right. And the, the officials with whom I spoke, or who spoke to me more accurately, during my trip were clear. And these are people who are involved in making this happen in the Indian government and economy. Um, stated from every person at every level from every part of the government and economic structure I spoke with said that the clear and, uh, objective of India is to become largely self-sufficient for its own arms needs and therefore, uh, at the same time, a global exporter. Now that's economically important, militarily important, but it, all, it is also geostrategically important. Because here, why did India sign a deal with Armenia, of all things? Why not with Burundi, where I keep, which I keep mentioning because it's dear to my heart having, having lived and worked there? Uh, because Armenia is, one doesn't step on the toes uh, immediately, of the great uh, arms powers and global powers, the United States or the or the um, uh, or France, uh, and yet it is uh, influencing an issue where a 
problematic uh, ally of India's is engaged, and that is Turkey. So it is injecting itself, India, into a, a strategic issue significant for regional powers and even uh, global powers, since it's on sort of the fracture line between the former Soviet Union, uh, Turkey's Ottoman uh, aspirations, and the West. Uh, and India has not played this kind of role uh, since 1947. And now it is, as it grows in power, uh, and almost despite itself, but in this instance quite consciously, uh, asserts an international role uh, as a growing great power. That uh, is a very astute observation, Glenn. And for our listeners who do not know history as well as you do, it is important to remind them that in 1919, undivided India, which included uh, Pakistan, India and Bangladesh as British India, experienced its first mass movement. And that mass movement was called the Khilafat Movement, also called the Non-Cooperation Movement, led by Gandhi Noels and uh, by two brothers. And the whole point of this movement was to restore the Khalifa, which is the Caliph, who was the Ottoman Sultan or Sultan, to his throne in Turkey. Now, of course, Mustafa Kemal Pasha, Kemal Ataturk's revolution put an end to that. But uh, Turkey has always had, for centuries, uh, hold on the Indian psyche, particularly on the hold of the psyche of Muslims in the subcontinent. Under the new, or not so new, under the under the under Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Turkey has uh, had ambitions to return to that Ottoman past, to those Ottoman roots. And Turkey has... Increasingly, increasingly explicit and, yes, and activist yes. under Erdogan. Exactly. And, and they have certainly championed Gaza, or sorry, Palestine, the cause of Palestine, and also the cause of Kashmir. And, and of course, uh, Pakistan and Turkey and Azerbaijan have become increasingly close when it comes to their diplomatic and military relationship. This has led to Indian fears that Turkey could be supplying drones to Pakistan, Turkey and Pakistan could uh, cause a problem for India in potential conflict, because after all, the Barkatyar drones have been extremely effective against Russian tanks, and most of Indian tanks are of Soviet origins. They're basically Russian tanks. And so the drones uh, potentially supplied by Turkey could decimate uh, the Indian uh, tank forces or the Indian armored columns. And so India, for the first time, has decided to punch back. So far, India stayed away from getting involved too far away from its region. Now, for That's the right. first time, India has decided, OK, we'll go on the front foot. We will back Armenia and we will back Armenia against um, uh, a country that pretends to lead the global ummah, ummah meaning the global community of Muslims, at least the Sunni A Muslims. single ruler for all of the Islamic world. Yes, yes. Uh, from 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 the from uh, from Bali uh, to um, the Atlantic uh, coast of Morocco. Brilliant. Yes, and so now you suddenly have um, a move on the chessboard by India, which is geostrategic, geopolitical, and, and frankly, a bit disorienting for Turkey and Azerbaijan because. Uh, Armenia, which has its backs to the wall, particularly with Russia not doing well, 
uh, doesn't really have any backer right now. Uh, I'm told there was uh, a, a tacit deal between Turkey and uh, Russia, between Putin and Erdogan, between the great President Vladimir Putin and the great Sultan, the great Tsar Vladimir Putin and the great Sultan uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, that Armenia would be sacrificed uh, uh, on the altar for Black Sea access to the Russian fleet. Yeah, yeah. This is this is a, a consequential, even potentially historic, I would say, uh, moment um, uh, or shift for, for since 1947. India has dealt with issues on its borders as it has deemed necessary, which largely means Pakistan, sometimes China, um, and. Sri Lanka, I suppose, with uh, instability there. But that's largely it. And otherwise it said everyone should leave everybody alone and we are going to collectivize our agriculture and, and uh, have quarter tone music, just uh, and go our own way. Um, that's not the case now. And, and uh, India uh, is quickly um, assuming uh, a function, a role, I guess, of uh, international uh, player. Uh, and we, we'll see this also or are seeing this also uh, in the uh, sector that people are more familiar with where India has a growing power and leadership, and that is the uh, in the cyber uh, tech technological world. Uh, India is um, defining its own, uh, here are the terms I, I'm not an expert on, uh, uh, the parameters of how the internet uh, will be regulated, uh, both uh, as to technical uh, norms and um, uh, the uh, parameters that one must follow to uh, to have access to to uh, nations um, internet markets, I suppose I'll call it in, in uh, awkward terms. Uh, up until now, that it has been default the United States largely and progressively China in its own domain, but we're seeing in right. Uh, in the last couple of years, an increasingly assertive India, which says, we will define our own system. You may buy into it if you wish um, uh, and uh, align with us, uh, but uh, we are going our own way. And India is such a large player, both with technical uh, uh, skill uh, and uh, market uh, share, that uh, it is becoming uh, at least... Uh, an influencer on, on the global norms for uh, cyber uh, technology and, and structures, uh, if not, uh, as the officials I spoke with told me, they seek to become the dominant shaper of uh, the future of the Internet. Well, there's certainly a desire to, to move in those technological realms. Of course, uh, India has major challenges ahead, but India is trying to have, for instance, uh, uh, a new form of digital stack, a new form of digital infrastructure. That is, the rupee system has come, which will undercut Visa and MasterCard. India has also developed uh, uh, direct benefits now to uh, the unbanked. India's uh, got a digital ID system called Aadhaar, which actually began to be fair under the previous government. Uh, but this government has used it very well for delivery of benefits and it has largely, I shouldn't, wouldn't say completely, but largely stopped a lot of leakage 
of delivery of services and benefits. So India is going through profound change. Now, obviously, there are lots of reforms. The Indian bureaucracy is still largely inept, uh, uh, still quite corrupt. The Indian judiciary uh, is basically uh, largely a lucky, um, you know, it's largely full of members of the Lucky Sperm Club. Uh, you, you, you do not have appointment by elected representatives. It's just a collegium. Judges appoint fellow judges and they tend to appoint their nephews, uh, children or uh, cousins uh, to top jobs. So there are lots of problems. But these, um, if we take the meta perspective, are teething troubles and reforms will gradually follow as India's economy grows and as the Indian citizen becomes more aware and more demanding. Uh, the key thing to note, as, uh, as uh, Glenn and I constantly discuss, is that how India now is involved in the Quad. India is now talking about the Indo-Pacific. India is looking at the Blue Water Navy, at a Blue Water Navy. India is looking at aircraft carriers and nuclear-powered submarines uh, and more of them. Uh, so what, what we are seeing is uh, a slow but steady shift from uh, the non-aligned status to great power involvement and uh, a willingness to stand up to its uh, eastern uh, neighbor, the big giant, the Middle Kingdom, uh, China, led by, of course, another emperor, Xi Jinping. Yeah, I don't want to. I'm glad you mentioned the the Quad um, because it's a it's a good way for me to touch upon um, the uh, strategic perspective or framework that the that all of the Indian counterparts, interlocutors I, with whom I interacted uh, had. And, and I, I do not want to uh, uh, sound a, um, a pure cheerleader for, uh, for India and all things Indian. Uh, it, like everywhere else, there are a lot of completely nonsensical um, uh, uh, convictions and, and uh, residual beliefs and misconceptions and preconceptions and so on. Uh, and, and policies, <clears throat> I find that the uh, perspective of, my, of the officials that I dealt with, or, or even if not officials, the influential individuals, uh, if you're working in the private sector, lags, and, and this is a natural uh, phenomenon, I think, lags uh, behind the reality, meaning that there is a reflexive wariness of, if not even hostility to, um, uh, the United States and the West, therefore, that by definition it's exploitative, uh, can't be trusted, it's hostile to India. Um, I would argue, uh, I didn't work directly on Indian affairs, but, but I, my life has been uh, international relations, and so therefore the U.S. position towards India as it was relevant to a host of issues uh, would uh, come up uh, in my work. That those perspectives that I just uh, iterated are, if they ever were true, are not. Uh, but they continue to be shared, uh, believed by, by many Indians. So what we see is a 20-year slow, halting, really slow, um, evolution of India to international engagement through, uh, on a strategic level, through uh, bodies like the Quad, which uh, most of you will know is a, a defense-related strategic level discussion group at this point between India, Japan, Australia, and the United States. Now, what's the point of the Quad? It's stated that it is just to coordinate 
um, the only concrete measures are to coordinate uh, pharmaceutical uh, uh, regulations and distribution and so on. But everyone knows that this is simply not true. Everyone knows it except perhaps the Indian public, that it is really a, a nascent strategic um, uh, body uh, explicitly created to counter the rise and the aggressiveness of uh, China. Uh, India is now regularly talking uh, about the about Indo-Pacific security. This is a phrase uh, first uh, coined really by um, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. And I think it's a wise one because it does embrace everything from Pakistan to Hawaii um, as a strategic theater. Um, and India is not just saying everyone should uh, leave everybody else alone, but is concerned about uh, actions in the South China Sea and the Malacca Straits in the Indian Ocean and the Persian Gulf. And, and now does have, I think India has one, two, let's see. There's uh, the United States, China, Japan. India might have the fourth largest uh, military budget in the world. If not, it's in the top half dozen and, and growing. And a blue, by Blue Water Navy, that Atul uh, alluded to, it's not just a navy capable of uh, coastal defense, but of projecting power anywhere in the world. And since 1945, or maybe since 1950, there has really only been one country in the world with a Blue Water Navy, and that is the United States. But that's not true uh, quickly. That's becoming no longer true. China actually has the largest navy in the world now, and uh, in many ways the most modern one because their ships are being built much more quickly and much more rapidly uh, in greater numbers than the United States. But India, too, is uh, engaged in a, a program of um, power projection capabilities so that it can take part in maneuvers off the coast of Japan uh, or in Hawaii. Uh, and defend its interests, which largely align, and I'll, I'll wrap this up, you know, make the point coherent here, largely align really clearly with those of the United States. It, India does accept, agree with the freedom of navigation principle. It doesn't accept that the South China Sea or that the Pacific out to Guam become a Chinese lake, nor the, the Indian Ocean becoming one. Um, and that's just one example of strategic uh, issues where India aligns with what's traditionally been called the West. But India's attitude is that, oh, no, no, we don't. It still lags the reality of the evolving policy. And, and so I think, I hope, and it's necessary, that uh, India more openly, frankly, embrace its role as um, a defender of Western norms, which are Indian norms. But so far it has not. Uh, well, that um, perhaps may be changing. We, we met a number of people in India. We met a remarkable naval chief, a retired naval chief uh, called Admiral um, uh, Vijay Shekhavat, who shares uh, the same interests in books as Glenn. Uh, you can speak a little more about that in a, in a second, Glenn. Uh, but the important thing is that when we spoke to the Admiral and when we spoke to the US defense attache in India, uh, Admiral Mike Baker, another very impressive chap, 
there was a lot of convergence in the thinking of the two admirals. So yes, there are teething troubles, but I think there is an alignment in principles and there is something substantive to build upon. Well, I think it is happening. I think, I guess we always look backwards rather than forwards, or at least our attitudes um, um, lag uh, the present uh, in, in most instances. Um, I, I, think, I think that's uh, part of human nature, really, I guess, except for visionaries are the, are the ones who change our, our frameworks, and, and they are you know, quite, quite rare. Um, but it is happening. Um, I, I did hear an example of, of how the attitudes don't correspond with reality. Any number of my Indian um, discussion mates during my trip did what I've heard for decades from Indians, which is, oh, you know, you Americans, you're exploitative, you're taking, you know, you, you, um, uh, we need to have our own our arms uh, industry and, and you guys just want to have us buy American goods and so on. I'm, I'm simplifying, but that's roughly it. To which uh, Admiral uh, Baker, the American, replied quite in a quite understated way. He said, well, it's probably relevant that people understand or be become aware of the fact that 34% uh, of um, the United States is not hostile to, to this uh, process. 34% of uh, India's uh, arm... No, 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 no. 34% of all... C-130 aircraft, I think it was, which is an American plane, are manufactured in India. Uh, and there are other uh, items too. The point being he was making is that there is uh, deep involvement already, consequential and, and substantive, uh, that the uh, Indian conventional view is not aware of. So there isn't hostility. There is already integration occurring. There is not opposition by the U.S., uh, only what lags is the um, sort of reflexive view among the Indian elites that I saw um, that uh, this was not happening and was uh, unwise because America would be exploitative, whereas you know, the Indians are building a third of America's transport aircraft. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, you probably want to refer a bit to Admiral Vijay Shekhavat as well when he talked about the great strategic challenges and uh, he spoke about uh, a need for better cooperation, better, uh, better uh, engagement, especially when it came to the child challenge from China. Yeah, I think it's it's coming. Um, uh, I, I think Indians will find uh, progressively uh, that um, what. Everyone in India seems to be convinced that America has this love affair with Pakistan, which is a mystery to the Indians. And that was always the case while I was working, too. And well, they... well, to be fair, to be fair, Glenn, you did have a love affair with uh, the Pakistanis. Of course, we had a love affair with the Soviets. And you sent the Seventh Fleet uh, in the 1971 war, despite the blood telegram sent by your own diplomat, to support a military dictatorship against uh, in a democratic India. Well, see, there. This is the. This is fascinating, and, and I think an important point. The, the American view is of what the aircraft carrier was doing. I think was different. Rather than to support Pakistan, it was to avoid an ex, an expansion of the 
clash to uh, include perhaps the invasion of and destruction of Pakistan, but not to st not to oppose uh, India's frankly resolving the issue of uh, Bangladesh and uh, of the uh, crisis in uh, Kashmir of, of, at the moment. Uh, but that's, it's clear from everyone who speaks with me that the, that is not how the Indians viewed the arrival of the Seventh Fleet, which it probably was maybe Sixth, I would think Seventh Fleet, off the coast of uh, India at the time. Um, but also, it's not a love affair. <laughs> I don't think you'll find any American who says it's a love affair with Pakistan. Uh, but rather, we, we have been stuck with um, what we view as a, uh, a necessary uh, partner uh, for an, meaning Pakistan, for a number of reasons which transcend anything which happens in the, from the American perspective on the Indian subcontinent or Indo-Pakistani relations. And that's the great clash of the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And, and two, that was one, and two, the, the concern, even the fear, that Pakistan implode or explode and become a radically uh, aggressive, uncontrollable, uh, Islamic uh, wild card, and and so a an obstreperous, difficult Pakistan, certainly from an Indian perspective, uh, but one which isn't exporting nuclear weapons or or blatantly supporting at a massive level um, jihadists, uh, is preferable to uh, to the to to that, and that's been the American objective, not not a love affair with Pakistan. We've been sort of stuck. Mm. You're stuck, uh, you're stuck uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, a mistress who has given you syphilis uh, and gonorrhea and HIV, all three. <laughs> well, okay. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'll let the Indian of the two of us say that and I'll, I'll, I'll say that, you know, yes. a, a, um, a difficult friend, but one we try to have as a friend. Uh, well, Exactly. So uh, very quickly, uh, Glenn didn't mention it, but Glenn and uh, Admiral Shekhavat both love Joseph Conrad, amongst other yeah. things. And, and, and of course, uh, uh, the Admiral also loves Shekhov, and he's uh, reading Marshal Zhukov's uh, memoirs in Russian, uh, because, of course, he trained uh, as a submarinist, uh, as a submariner. Um, if that's the accurate term in um, Russia and Russia. Submariner, I think, so, would, uh, I think that's the American pronunciation. Okay, sub. Uh, marine, marina, mariner, mariner. Okay, submariner. I stand corrected. I'll have to look that up as to how the English call it. But he sailed uh, submarines, or rather, brought submarines from Vladivostok all the way to India. And we'll we'll be speaking to him later. But the more important thing here is that uh, during our discussions, during uh, during our trip in India, what we found was, on the whole, a convergence of thought from those in business, from those in the government, particularly the political side, and from those uh, who think about India's history and India's politics and international relations, that uh, the time had come for India to step up to play a more constructive role on the global stage, to have a seat at the top table, to have a seat in the UN Security Council, and, and generally uh, to be a force for good, uh, whatever that means. Basically what that means is that supply 
more vaccines, uh, keep providing manpower for UN missions, and generally uh, uphold uh, the, the laws of the seas, freedom of navigation, a lot of freedoms that the UN stands for. Uh, and, and I keep pointing out that uh, uh, India is not a revolutionary power unlike China. China would like to upend, even though it benefits greatly from institutions like the United Nations, perhaps uh, the World Bank even today, and of course the WTO, the World Trade Organization. India is much more a reformist power. It wants a reform to these institutions to reflect changed realities from 1945. But uh, India does believe in these institutions and does want to engage in the order as it has emerged after 1945, making it clear that there is a convergence or a greater degree of convergence between India and, let's say, the US and the dominant powers of Europe and Europe as a whole uh, than there is between what is generally called the West and and China. Yeah, I, I, I in general, uh, overall, I, I agree with what you just uh, said. It's very important. I, I would say that you know, I don't think the Indians are any more altruistic than anyone else. India will act uh, invariably uh, to defend and advance its own interests. And that's what every state does. That's not a criticism. That's just a, a characterization. But where the altruism comes in uh, gets to not Joseph Conrad, who I, is my favorite author, uh, along with the admiral, um, but to Alexis de Tocqueville. And he, he is, as many of you will know, the greatest uh, analyst um, describer of American civilization. Why is America a democracy, and, and what is a democracy, and why does it succeed, and, and how? And the, the single most important insight he had is that the Americans pursue um, what in French is called l'intérêt de soi bien compris, which means self-interest well understood. If one only pursues self-interest, then we end up with the tragedy of the commons and uh, a, a law of nature where everyone uh, seeks domination over everyone else, or at least their own interests at others' expense. But if one understands that certain actions, um, certain self-restraint uh, in certain in circumstances um, can adduce to the general common good and therefore to your own in a way that is not possible any other by any other uh, action, then you have uh, a collective um, upward spiral of, of actions. And I found it was powerful, the, the sense that I came away with uh, from my near month in India, that Indian uh, culture, you know, what, culture is always going to be varied, but, but Indian culture is syncretic and open. It embraces multiple truths, and this is fundamentally important. If one is an absolutist in anything, uh, then the world uh, will become vicious and collapse. But if one realizes that things are relative uh, and that uh, benefit comes from uh, multiple perspectives simultaneously uh, existing, uh, then uh, there can be a general uh, upward spiral of individual opportunity and, uh, and, sh and individual and shared uh, wealth and safety. And this has been the genius of American civilization domestically. And I argue, I'm not the only one to argue this, why the Pax Americana since 1945 
has been unique in world history. It is, in, in many ways, an empire. But the difference is that, except on issues of vital national importance, as defined by American leaders, and they might define that wrongly, except on issues like that, uh, the United States does promote and has sought to uh, enforce and strengthen norms where even the great powers will accept uh, correction or, or, or loss. So, example, um, uh, the Europeans uh, developed uh, Airbus. It has supplanted 50% of what used to be 100% control of the aeronautical industry by Boeing and Lockheed and so on. And Boeing and America was not thrilled by this, but has accepted it, recognizing, accepting, realizing that it adduces to the general welfare of everyone. Everyone is richer, freer, safer uh, uh, than uh, by imposing what the British did to India. Um, that's the difference. Self-interest well understood. You, you can restrain yourself at some times. Now, this clearly, to me, appeared to be the case in Indian civilization also. I don't think that it is a coincidence that uh, the Indians developed a concept of zero, of absence, of universality, uh, and of multiplicity of perspectives and realities. I, I don't want to sound too metaphysical, but from those perspectives, which clearly are foundations of Hinduism, um, one leads to what is fundamentally uh, viewed since World War II as the Western uh, perspective of, of individual behavior and norms and international relations. And so I think India is a natural uh, um, ally because it shares at, at the deepest level the same values uh, while pursuing self-interest. So I, I think that it's inevitable, uh, it should be anyway, <laughs> that India become... Uh, a glo global power, but one that has embraced largely the norms of uh, post-World War II Pax Americana. All right. Uh, well, we don't know about Pax Americana, but we shall we shall certainly have a Pax. Uh, uh, well, Pax Americana is done. Yeah, yeah Pax global, Globalana or whatever you want to call it. But, <laughs> but, yes, but, that's a good one. But uh, we've come uh, uh, to the end of our time today and we began with the multiverse. We end with the multiverse. Clearly, we are making a nice pagan Hindu out of you or a nice pagan <laughs> man of the Gangetic traditions, a Buddhist slash Jain slash Hindu slash whatever you want to call uh, yourself. So it seems. <laughs> uh, but uh, on a more serious note, uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Glenn, as always. Uh, we will be addressing Great Britain in our next podcast. We will be making sense uh, of post-Brexit Britain. We'll go from the jewel in the crown to the crown itself. And so for those of you who have missed us, uh, we are back. And, uh, <laughs> and the Rashwood and the Wasp uh, are saying bye for now. Sailing off into the multiverse. Next time. <laughs> Until next time. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>